Mark, hi, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you very much. Excellent, excellent. Um, I, I'm very excited about this. <laughs> Me too. We, uh, we caught up the other week, um, but, but looking back, we, we first met, um, I think, well, we definitely uh, exchanged some words at the University of Sussex, and, and we, right. may, we may even have met uh, in Edinburgh. Uh, That's right. We did. We did meet in Edinburgh originally, but we've seen each other a couple of times since then. Yeah. And, yeah. and so now, now you find yourself in Japan. <laughs> yeah. How's that happened? Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel very fortunate, really. Uh, you know, the job market right now in academia is a bit tight because of COVID. Um, universities are struggling, I think, to keep um, faculty levels online. Um, but a job came up here at Hokkaido University. They have a new center called the Center for Human Nature, Artificial Intelligence and Neuroscience. And it's, it's fantastic. It was like it was built for me. Um, my, uh, my colleague and mentor, Julian Kiverstein, put me onto it. Um, I was just coming up, you know, I was working with Andy Clark at the University of Sussex on the Expect project. Yeah. And that was a postdoc position and it was just coming to the end and I was just starting to look for, you know, what the next thing was. And Julian saw the job posting for here in Japan and handed it on to me because it looked like it was such a good fit for me. And wow, was it ever a good fit? I mean, I don't know if you've had a chance to see the website, but it's really fantastic. You don't often see websites like this. I mean, the, the whole spirit of the department is to get philosophers and neuroscientists and machine learning researchers together to tackle topics that are central to human well-being and you know especially human relationships with technology and well-being which is exactly what i'm interested in doing now yeah yeah, yeah. so this this really triggered so I, I heard you talking about that um and then i did look at the website and 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 i was kind of like wow and this is probably why I'm very excited about, about all of yeah, it. Cool. Um, because, you know, I, I'm hearing you use words like, you know, studying, flourishing and, and thriving mm. as humans. Um, yeah. and, and I'm going to be slightly selfish as well, because yeah. I'm, I'm trying to I'm going to try and get you to come through your lens at some of the stuff that I'm doing, because it just seems to really resonate and to have some kind of explanation would be would be fantastic. I love um, that. And just and just to prime that, you know. I'm excited about getting a chance to talk with you here because, um, of course, it's purely theoretical on my end. And I would love to hear from a practitioner where some of these things actually hit the road. So yeah. this will be very fruitful, I think. Yeah. And, and so, you know, again, tracking back to those, the expect meetings, which were just fantastic um, and, and others as well, which we were probably both at with, you know, because yeah. we, we sort of mingle in the same circle. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm always a bit of the oddball um there's, there's this physio guy here and, and everyone else is sort of academic <laughs> and intellectual uh, and scientists and, and philosophers and I, I love it you know I love that scene um but I'm, I'm definitely the the odd one out and you know the dinners and things when, when we had those um you know most of the stuff I just wouldn't understand but then there was the occasional thing oh yes that that makes sense and it made it all worth it for those two days <laughs> yeah. sitting in a small room listening to amazing people talking but then it, it struck me that um and we spoke about this before, the, uh, the challenge of understanding a lot of the language and the things that are being said, because there's some really practical things being done and said, 
but but yeah. to understand them now the, the difference i found when i'm listening to you speak um is that it makes sense you use language that, that makes sense to to me what, what what's that all about no i don't know that's great though <laughs> i mean <laughs> i mean if that's how you feel I'm, I'm extremely flattered and that means i'm doing my job well um i um yeah i mean i'm I guess the only thing to say is, is that I'm as interested in teaching as I am in research. And not everybody who's doing research is also interested in teaching. Sometimes they have to teach, um, but you know, their real heart is with research, but I love teaching. So it matters to me. I try, um, I try to only get involved in research projects that I think will have real impact on people's lives. And then I spend a lot of time trying to find ways to communicate those things so that they can actually have impact on yeah. people's lives. So that's great to hear somebody actually feedback to me that it's working <laughs> yeah no absolutely now have you are you a qualified teacher uh do you mean uh well what do you mean do you mean like uh so like an you, education like an education degree well not i mean have you have you had any kind of training on how to how to teach or does it just sort of come come naturally right uh no i don't really have all that much training on how to teach tell you the truth but i've just taught my whole life um yeah. i taught i taught business and sales in my early 20s and then uh, I've been a tutor ever since I was in university, even in my undergraduate, I was tutoring. Yeah. And I've yeah. been, of course, teaching graduate and now postgraduate classes and seminars here at the university um, for the last number of years. Um, so no, I don't have any formal coursework in teaching, but I take it seriously. And um, I'm constantly honing my craft from yeah. class to class. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're, you're then in a sense aware of your errors and then updating your model. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly right. And those errors are the ones that matter, right? Because you only update, you know, in this framework that we've been talking about, this predictive processing framework, you only update errors that really matter to you. And you're right. The errors that are related to teaching well, they matter. So yeah. then I'm updating relative to them. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, I, I might, I'm, I'm going to stay a little bit close to the edge here, perhaps for some people. And I know that, that some teachers do listen to, to this because I've had quite a few coaches and, and that sort of and, and teachers on because I'm very oh. interested in education and getting different perspectives. But there's this phrase and, and it's not just unique to the education world, but but dead wood. And, and they're mm. kind of people that sort of and, and it's not a necessarily a finger pointing thing, but but are kind of stuck in their own way of doing things the same way over and over and over, which is basically not delivering any kind of results and sort of just drift along with the uh, with the tide. Right. Right. And that's well, not you know, really for our kids. Right. One of the things that um, comes out of some of the research I've been doing is um, I think occasional glimpses at what we might think of as virtues for our kind of system. So, you know, I do, um, I do theoretical neuroscience, philosophy of cognitive science, and I'm primarily interested in this framework that pitches the brain and the, the wider system as primarily predictive, right? And when you start digging around in that research, um, I'm always excited to see when little sort of uh, normative things come up where it looks like, oh, wow, if you were that kind of system, then maybe it would behoove you to act in this sort of way because it would make you good at what you do. And mm. I don't know if you've heard this term, but super forecaster. Have you heard this? What no, super no, tell more. Cool. There's a new book out called Super Forecasters. And actually there's competitions all over the world where people come and you get given noisy data solo or in teams. And then you have to make predictions based on that noisy data and there's winners. And, uh, the cool thing is, is you're not just born with this, but you can train, you know, you can train this, you can train to be a good predictor. 
So I, you know, I'm kind of interested in this because if this theory of the brain and system is right, then there is something about us where we are trying to be good predictors. So I think it's kind of cool that there's this sport where people try to get good at predicting. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. What I love, what I love about it though, hold on. What I love about it though is that uh, what the qualities are that make a good super forecaster, uh, because I think they might also be some of the qualities that maybe make any kind of good predictive system, and maybe we're all predictive systems. And they're things like uh, be keep being curious. Don't ever stop being curious. And be interested in lots of different fields. Don't get stuck in one little field. And the most important one is um, to hold a high-level belief that your beliefs are only relatively right. So you should never think. So the, the person who ends up being a great forecaster, a super forecaster, has a modicum of self-doubt and has a modicum of uh, humbleness about what they know. And that leaves them open. It leaves them yeah. open for changing their belief structures because they're always, they're always thinking, well, actually, I know my models are only relatively right. So they're always up to be updated. Anyway, the reason why I mentioned that is, is because I try to approach teaching like that as well, which is I'm not sure the best way to teach. And so I'm always, I always have my eyes open for opportunities to update, to update yeah. my models about teaching and trying new things. And um, yeah, like that. Yeah. So this, I mean, this very much sounds, there's two, two principles um, that, that I like. There's many, but these two I like. And, and one is the, the beginner's mind, the Zen idea of yeah. beginner's mind, which that Dead speaks on. of, um, and also Kaizen. And I think the two, you know, continuous improvement, you know, the two together are, are extremely powerful. And, yeah. and funny enough, I was listening to um, uh, Laura's podcast um, with, mm-hmm. um, with Mick yesterday, and, and he was talking about, I think it was recorded last year, and obviously you appeared on it as well. Um, and, and he was talking about how philosophers will, are very happy to, to, I mean, they ask great questions. That sort of seems to be at the essence of it. And, and, can, and can discuss these things very, very openly and listen to each other's concerns, in inverted commas, um, and, and just have a really sort of uh, vivid and lively discussion which, which is not personal. Whereas in other fields, when you challenge someone's data, ideas, or whatever, it immediately becomes this, this battle in, of personalities. And, it, and it's really ugly and never really goes anywhere useful because everyone just feels a bit sort of like, um, and, and so that, that sort of approach, but, but aren't we sort of lucky to have that tendency? Yeah, exactly. And maybe more than lucky actually, because, um, over a number of papers recently, and this is becoming much more common in the field that I'm working in, we're seeing that all sorts of pathologies are related to frozen beliefs at different parts of the hierarchy. So, you know, you can think of the brain and nervous system as stacks of beliefs, stacks of sort of habits, really. And if any one gets stuck, gets frozen, and then it defends itself from updating, that's the, that's the kind of, a kind of ripe ground for pathology to start arising. So depression, for example, may be articulated, this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but it might be articulated as a kind of um, high, high order uh, belief that says the world just isn't going to work out. Yeah. And uh, then you start sampling the world in order to confirm that deep level belief that the world just really isn't going to work out. And even if you have rewards in your environment or you have lots of opportunities to feel good, um, you're overlooking them. This belief sort of suppresses all of the counter evidence. So it protects itself and insulates itself as, and as Hippolito has said, so it insulates itself 
And that's what causes your model of the world to start being a bit topsy-turvy because it's not, well, it's not taking on the right evidence anymore. But we can see that in pathological, like look at the, look at the problems that are happening in the States today. You know, people are really locking into belief cycles yeah. and then they're completely ignoring evidence. And you can see the outcome of that is a lot of stress and, um, you know, a lot of confusion. And of course, depression is gonna come before long because persistent errors create depression. Yeah, so you know, being able to flexibly update in the face of counter evidence is not only good for us; it it's sort of essential to our health. I think. Yeah, that that's what it felt like you were heading towards saying that that this ability to update is that that is kind of flourishing. That that is being in a in a healthy state. And and the sort right. of you use the word frozen, which I really like, because actually that that taps into the whole kind of ideas around you know fright, flight, freeze, the autonomic sure. nervous system, interest. So you know all this stuff this is where I start getting really excited because it kind of you know it starts to ping out into all these sort of other different areas, and we need to bring them together, but then make it real because what you've described there's exactly what people experience, isn't it? Their lived experience yes. is that that no matter how lovely the weather is or, or yep. they live in nice circumstances, if that if they're stuck in that that belief yep. that that higher belief that the world is yep. no good and and I can't make it any better. Um, and, and that's perhaps where we've struggled traditionally to to help people. And, and same yeah. with pain, you know, being stuck with pain or being stuck with anxiety. It seems exactly. as this, this top level belief or, or something is just kind of stuck. Um, yes. and we need to sort of help get the, the wheels turning somehow. And, and we do. But how do you think we do that? Well, I was just about to ask you that. How do you <laughs> do that? So if somebody has... So if belief, if uh, pain really is a perception, a little bit more of a perception than it is a sensation or some mix, but at least there is a healthy amount where it is a perception. It's being created in part top down based on our beliefs. And we know that to be true. You know, we have lots of evidence for that, you know, where people feel pain when there's no damage yeah. goes to show that there is a, there is an anticipatory element to pain. So if you, if you have patients who have chronic pain, chronic long lasting pain, so they have some deep some, something is frozen in place, even past the time that the damage has been repaired. What do you do as a practitioner? And what, what, what can one do to sort of move that forward? Yeah, well, I, I think there's, there's a number of things to, to think about. Um, first of all is, is how you as the individual clinician therapist present yourself and, and the model that you're presenting to, to them. So in other words, are you someone who gives messages of, of hope? Or are you someone who gives messages to say, I'm sorry, but but this is probably the way it's going to be for you. And, and people hear that. They hear that a lot still. Um, I don't believe that because that that to me is saying that life stands still and, and there's no there's no dynamic. And, and you know, I'm a big fan of, of impermanence as a sort of a concept. Mm. because That seems to be the way that, you know, how, how would life be if we if that wasn't the case? Yeah. So, you know, what we present, the language, that, that's the first thing. And then, and then the way that we work. So you can, you can focus on the pain um, and the bits that hurt and, and try and treat them uh, and get people moving them or, or, or thinking about them in different ways. Um, but to me, that always leads to fairly poor outcomes because, because in essence, what you focus on kind of governs how you feel and you just kind of get caught in that. It's almost like it would keep that there'd be no update of the error. You're just kind of doing the same thing. 
Right. Whereas if you can turn that on its head and think, okay, well, what does this person want to achieve? What's their picture of success? And how can I help them take steps each day in that direction and explore? Right. right. Tap into their values, what matters to them, stuff that brings them joy and pleasure or did right. years and right. now. Um, and, and just gradually take them forward so they sort of start to feel this sense of opportunity. And that's right. kind of coming through a coaching lens, using their strengths, talking about their strengths, successes they've had before and how they can leverage it that now. I love that. So, right. So um, I'm pretty interested right now in Robin Carhart Harris's work. Have you seen this on psychedelics and the role that they play in the brain? Have you seen any of this work? It's I'm aware of some of it, but not, not so tell, tell more. I'll share the paper after, but it's mm. fantastic. Um, so they talk about the brain annealing, annealing. So like, like metal, when you heat up metal, it becomes uh, flexible again. Right. And they, they're using the free energy principle, they're using this active inference approach to some degree. And they talk about how um, the brain can get fixed at higher levels in sort of attractor basins. Okay. So then there's not much movement and they say, well, actually, occasionally the brain needs to go into a hot entropic state, meaning it needs to occasionally for those valleys to become flat so that when the brain cools back down again, um, it has a chance to maybe have moved a little or to adjusted some of its habits. Just meaning to say we hold habits deep in the brain mm. and part of what it is to be healthy is to occasionally challenge those habits because yeah. maybe there are better, there are better ways that the self-organizing system could be self-organizing if it was just given a chance to, to sort of pop out of those slots. And uh, they have lots of evidence that shows that maybe psychedelics can do that. Um, that's one of the things that they're doing. That is one of the reasons why they can support health in some ways. They, um, they free up these higher level beliefs temporarily. So the brain temporarily gets hot and mm. malleable so that it moves in ways that it doesn't normally move outside of its own habit structures. And then when it cools back down again, there might just be the chance that the brain learned that, oh my goodness, that wasn't the only way I can self-organize. I can also self-organize like this or like this or like this. And I think the same thing, of course, is happening with meditation because what you're doing in meditation is you're challenging your high level beliefs by really looking at what ordinarily you were just assuming to be one way or another. And when you challenge that belief, again, you're, you're reducing those, those valleys, those attractor states higher up, which allows the brain a chance to maybe try something else. And I hear the same thing with your therapeutic approach there, which is uh, you get stuck in this one way of believing life is. And then what you have is you have you know, yourself as a coach taking the people bit by bit and showing them, well, that's not the only way that you could be self-organizing. Yes, okay, yes, there's pain. And yes, there might be some damage, yes. But look, there's all these other ways that you could be self-organizing around that thing. So you're temporarily, oh, you're, um, you're disrupting their belief that that, that, that uh, pain or that damage is, is, um, is propelling in their life. Yeah. Fascinating. I, I love that kind of the that kind of analogy, that metaphor of, of kind of you know heating things up to to allow right. something else to happen. You know, it feels right. it feels very sort of you know biological and 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 evolutionary. You know, that moving yeah. on to and, and that we can we can evolve. And and I think it ties in so nicely with your your you know your thinking around flourishing and, and thriving and focusing on instead of how can I treat this pain or, or how can I help myself with this, this pain? Well, how can I flourish? How can I thrive in my life? Yeah. And that's uh, the one big take home. So we did a, we did a number of paper, uh, papers in a row, uh, myself and Eric Reitfeld and Julian Kiverstein at the university of Amsterdam. 
we did a series of papers and we were looking primarily at pathologies. So we wrote a paper on depression. Um, I wrote a paper with um, George Dean and Sam Wilkinson on depersonalization and dissociative disorders. And uh, Julian and Eric and I wrote a paper on addiction. And um, so we were looking at all these pathologies and they shared one thing in common, which was they all had this freezing belief at a higher, uh, at a higher order part of the system that was then insulated from updating. So then uh, we thought, well, actually that might be a clue for what flourishing might be for humans. Mm -hmm. So we have a paper that's in review right now called the, the, the Predictive Dynamics of Happiness and Well-Being, mm -hmm. where we explore what the flip might be. And exactly like you say, we don't have any clear cut answer to what, sort of what a good life looks like. Not really. Our last chapter sort of gestures that sort of non-zero sum activities as being supportive of a good life. But mostly we focused on this bit of not getting frozen, mm. that remaining metastably, metastably attuned to your environment, being balanced, finding your stability by being flexible rather than by being rigid. Mm. Um, and, you know, that we've known for a long time that that underwrites sort of resilience. And I'm, I'm very interested right now in anti-fragility. Um, so, right. So we are really building a new perspective on well-being that really takes as its hallmark this flexibility to update and a, ability to change relative to new incoming data rather than getting stuck. Yeah. So a thought's just come to mind because I, you yeah. know, I love this kind of in positive psychology I've, I've been a fan of and, and enjoyed for, and, and seen the practical sense of for a number of years. Yeah. And, and it, it's, there's a certain, you know, some people are going to kind of buy into that um, and uh, are going to be able to adopt the skills so we can distill these things into skills and practices that they can use in their in their own world. But there's going to be a number of people who who live in very difficult circumstances, you know, so they might come into a clinic or, or, or work with someone and it all makes sense to build, you know, they work on their skills of resilience and such like. And then they have to go back into what, yeah. let's call it a, a toxic environment, you know, very difficult relationships, perhaps all sorts of financial pressures, difficulties. They're not, they're not able to afford a particularly good diet. You know, that, that kind of situation. Do you, yeah. do you think that we can create things practically for, for everyone? Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, you know, those beliefs can get frozen for lots of different reasons. So there's not just one thing that freezes them, you know? So you can have environmental aspects that freeze the system for you, you know? Like you have persistent hunger is gonna engender, is gonna engender fear around food, you know? And that's gonna freeze that for you in some way because it's, because it's meaningful. Same thing we see soldiers coming home with PTSD. Some research by Rebecca Todd um, at the UBC showed that you know their uh, their amygdala is supersized so you know you get this where you've you've hung out in a dangerous situation long enough that the brain has just found a better way to self-organize which is to expect there to be danger in your environment it's super important for a soldier right to expect yeah. that there's going to be danger so that they're really tuned in to dangerous stimuli um but then they come home and that little bit's frozen where that has uh a real power in how processing happens going forward. So even when they get into a situation where there's much less danger or no danger, you know, back home, um, still the brain is, uh, it's stuck in that old processing style. And of course, there's a lot of work that's needed to free that up. So I just mean to say like, 
course, the environment is a big factor in here. It's not just like, oh, you know, stop holding those beliefs that are causing you problems. Um, they really get engendered in, in sort of lots of different ways. So um, I guess it's a, it's, a larger, it's a larger question, isn't it? Like, what can we change in the environment and in our education systems that help people learn how to stay flexible and help to challenge their own belief structures. I mean, again, you know, the mindfulness movement is really about this, teaching people how to, um, for themselves, investigate what beliefs they hold. Yeah. And then, and then by, closely, by closely reflecting on them, begin to cause some, uh, to jeopardize some of those beliefs, especially if, they, if they're not true, if they don't hold correctly. And that just is that hot entropy we were talking that, uh, that psychedelics may, may do as well, you know, uh, what it would, what hot entropy really means is, is that you are, um, you're challenging your belief structure so that the brain becomes uncertain again. If it's uncertain, then it'll try to update. It'll try to find another way to do it. It's only yeah. when it's very, very certain, is it very, very stuck. Yeah. So um, anyway, so I think mindfulness is a really, uh, mm. could be a very powerful way to do this for ourselves, to look, to see what beliefs are governing my actions. And if those beliefs are creating unskillful or unbeneficial outcomes, then to use mindfulness as a methodology to reflect actually on those beliefs to see whether or not you can jeopardize those beliefs in some ways. And in jeopardizing them, uh, of course, your brain is optimal. So if you jeopardize it, the brain will start looking around for better, for better options. And I think that's what you do when you do mindfulness on pain or mindfulness on addiction, for sure. Yeah. You know, you jeopardize those big beliefs that say, well, I need to have this drug of choice right now. So you look at the, you look at the pain that comes from the addiction and you start seeing, wait, 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 that's not what I thought it was. You know, that's just sensation. It's just sensation in the body. It's coming, it's going, like you were saying earlier, you know, yeah. it's a, uh, it's transient, it's impermanent. And when you start seeing that, those beliefs that, oh, well, this is going to go on forever, unless you satiate it, you realize, wait, that wasn't true at all, which maybe leaves some room for the brain to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that you, you know, you teach meditation, don't you? I do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and is this how you, you sort of describe it to people as they're coming along, you know, maybe at the beginning, do you say this is, this is why we're doing it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's right. You know, um, really, I think all meditation is, is just, it's just mental and emotional development. And, um, you know, there's lots of things you do in meditation, like there's lots of skills and abilities that can be developed. But one of the central ones, one of the really important ones is to figure out what do you believe and how do those beliefs have an impact on your life? And are they real? Are they true mm. or not? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. don't take my word for it, but build the internal laboratory through getting better attention and better awareness abilities that you can sit down and actually look at your belief and look at the how it affects your life and look at it closely enough that uh, you might see that actually bad beliefs aren't well, you see that beliefs might be bad beliefs because you see they don't hold. Like, yeah. for instance, you know, well, I can imagine, you know, there, there's certain aspects about pain that I, I've definitely learned in my life where, well, a better one is maybe anxiety. You know, we all suffer from anxiety in our life now and again. And um, I went through a cycle of having panic attacks at the end of my PhD, like probably most doctoral students <laughs> do, because it nearly kills you going through a PhD. Um, and, uh, you know, the first time it happens is really scary because I think introspectively, it's, it's especially scary because you, you're not sure if it will ever end. It sort of feels like that. It feels like, oh, well, this is now going to be my state going forward. 
So a big reason why you suffer, or at least why I suffered it was because I could feel that I had a sort of automatic assumption that this anxiety was going to go on forever. And if you've ever had anxiety episodes, I think probably you can, you can sympathize with that. Um, but if you're mindful, even when you're having like a big anxiety moment, um, what you can learn every time that that happens, you learn a little bit better is that there's a natural arc. There's a natural arc at which anxiety runs. And as soon as you know that, you've then jeopardized that high order belief that says, okay, well, this is, this is going to go on forever. So you really have to do something right now to, to, to get out of here. And that resistance, that fight or flight, there's a lot of the problem in those situations. Um, as soon as you know the natural arc, then there is a, there, of course, you're still anxious. That's for sure the case. And the biosystem is still going to move in the way the biosystem moves. But you notice that it loses a lot of its teeth yeah. as soon as you've now jeopardized that uh, hidden assumption that this was going to go on for ages and ages. And I think we can do that with all sorts of things with meditation, with pain, with, I mean, we all suffer some sort of addiction. So with the cravings that come with addiction, with anxiety, with, with every kind of emotion, you know, emotions aren't meant to last. I mean, they bio don't last. That's just yeah. the nature of emotions. And yet we act all the time, like they're going to last yeah. forever, you know, yeah. but if you really look at them, you see that they don't last. Actually, the only reason why they did an experiment with depression, like really serious clinical depression. And they asked people who had, you know, really serious clinical depression, how often are you depressed? And the people tended to say, well, I'm depressed all the time. You know, I wake up depressed. I live depressed. I go to sleep depressed. That's my life. And then they gave them beepers and then they beeped them randomly over the next number of weeks or months. I can't remember. And, uh, what they, what they asked them to do is when it beeps to write down their emotion, like actually what they're feeling right then. Yeah. And they found that actually they were only really depressed sort of 15% of the time. Wow. Um, the rest of the time they were feeling a range of other emotions. Um, so the big part of their suffering was that they kept overlooking that belief. So the belief said, I'm depressed. And it was, it was uh, muting the counter evidence and it was turning the volume up on all of the evidence that aligned with it. Yeah. And so you're really living in a world built by your belief structure. And, uh, you know, of course, major depression needs to be treated in lots of different ways because it is a, it's a dynamic system all on its own. One of the things that could potentially be beneficial is to really look at it and see whether or not it's presenting itself in the way that you're assuming it presents itself, because maybe it's not, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess what you're talking about there is this this difference, and I try and help people see this the the difference between what what you're actually experiencing and the qualities of that, and the story you're telling yourself yeah. about it. Exactly, exactly right. And so, if you challenge the story, that's just that hot entropy we've been talking about again, where the brain gets plastic again, because the reason why it stopped being plastic was because it was like, oh, I know. I've got the story down. I don't need to spend resources anymore trying to figure the story out. Life yeah. is a bit garbage. I got the story right. So I don't, need to, I don't need to invest resources anymore to see if it's not that. I've got the story right now. And you know, you're, I mean, coming from this framework that I'm working on, these stories are more than just stories, right? Because the things that you expect the world to be like, they're the ones, that's what's governing your perception and your behavior in the world. So your world is really being demarcated. It's being carved out of these expectations. So the story that you've locked onto, that's the world you live in. So it's really important that we know what stories we're telling. And then if you don't like the story, how do we get out of it? Yeah. And this is part of that. That's part of what you do is that you can, 
well, there's many ways that we do this, but we, one of the ways you do it is you challenge that belief structure. You, you invalidate it in some way. You find counter evidence uh, for that story by looking closely at your, at, actually at what's going on, just like you just said, which forces the brain to maybe become a bit more plastic to see if it can get a better grip. And then you don't know, maybe it gets a better grip on a better story. Yeah. And then that, that person's got to be kind of willing to go there um, sure. And of course, that you know, you you meet you meet a lot of resistance with these things. Uh, that's where something like motivational interviewing is a beautiful kind of approach and an art and technique to allow you to kind of really work with people on that resistance. Absolutely. I mean, if you start thinking that what we take to be ourself is what we predict about ourselves, then lots of these beliefs they get integrated as parts of the self, and so they don't want to be updated, right? I mean. Mm -hmm. Part of that is evolutionarily smart. You don't want to update beliefs too quick. You don't want somebody just to tell you any old thing and your life just adjusts based on it, right? So there is an evolutionary reason why we want to hold our beliefs close to us. Um, so you're right. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to be challenged too much because that creates more, it creates more uncertainty and entropy in the system, which is really what the system is trying to reduce, trying to reduce the entropy or uncertainty. The problem is, is that the way that it reduces it can be kind of garbage, mm. you know, like the long-term addict is also reducing uncertainty within their drug seeking and taking repetitive behavior. So they've carved out a life where they're managing uncertainty fairly well, but it's leading them in a, in a, in a sort of bad way that's ultimately not going to be sustainable. Yeah. Um, so then I guess, I guess this is the subtle art of being, um, of being a therapist or of being a coach is that you have to help people find a way to slowly start invalidating their beliefs to, to discover their beliefs. And I, I suspect a major part of that would be to, oh, I can think of two things that would be central to that. One, get people to start recognizing that their beliefs are not identical with what they are, that beliefs are updatable, no matter what the belief is. So like you were saying right at the beginning, impermanence, recognizing that all beliefs are updatable and should be updatable and that you're in no danger of updating your beliefs. That's one thing. And the second thing is getting really comfortable with uncertainty and suffering. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine how you get better. I don't know how we're going to get better as a species until we get better at being able to just be a little bit more uncomfortable yeah. because discomfort is the quality you get when this annihilation begins to happen because it means there's more uncertainty in the system. But if there's not more uncertainty, you can't get from one pocket to the other. You've got it. You can't just go from pocket to pocket. You've got to go up. You've got to go up back into uncertainty and then back down again, which means you're going to have this uncomfortable moment where you're like, oh, no, I don't know how it is at all. And I think we would really serve ourselves to get very comfortable with the feeling of uncertainty, getting more acquainted with what it feels like and learning that it's not necessarily a problem. And I, I suspect that's what the Buddhists have been doing for a long time, really mm. focusing on suffering. I mean, the first noble truth being life is filled with suffering yeah. makes you start by saying, okay, look, there is suffering here. Stop trying to get away from it. Yeah. Second, let's try to build the best possible life now that we've accepted that there's going to be suffering along the way. Yeah. I mean, that's so important and, and has triggered off a, a whole bunch of thoughts. I mean, certainly there was an article in The Guardian yesterday about this mahusive increase in, in ultra running, which, as you know, I'm, I'm sort of into. And yeah, you're, cool. you're going out and causing yourself a lot of uncertainty and, and discomfort along, along the way. Um, and, and it throws up all sorts of 
conundrums and emotions and, and experiences, um, which would make you in the cold light of day wonder what on earth you're doing. Um, so kind of that yeah. one thing, but also we've had this these messages for so long now in society about how things, they are certain, you can do this, it's definite. Um, and, and so we've got generations coming through who, who appear to really struggle with uncertainty. Um, certainty yeah. is their number one need. And if that's your number one need, then you're always going to be trying to control everything. And of course, yes. that's the great stress um, right. in terms of how you feel, but also the biology of stress ongoing, because your body becomes inflamed. And then all this stuff, depression, anxiety, pain, yeah. all emerge from, from that. Yeah. I completely hear that about the marathon running. That's very interesting about causing yourself physical uncertainty is a, is a really interesting. It's a really interesting thing to do. And I can imagine why, even though you're creating a bunch of pain in the body, I imagine it's a painful thing, you know, your knees and your back and, you know, you're, you're putting yourself under extreme duress, but um, wouldn't that just be doing for your model of the body exactly what we've been talking about this whole conversation? What you're doing is you're teaching yourself that you can have all of these, you can have all of this mounting uncertainty, you can have all of this sort of pain um, and uncomfort, discomfort in the body, and yet you're you're fine. You know, at the end of the day, you're fine. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we're not sort of self-medicating by pushing ourselves in those sorts of ways, just teaching the system that it can be much more than yeah. it thinks it can be. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, it, there's, you know, I, I kind of use running as a bit of a laboratory for myself and, and exploring right. things and trying things. And, and I had a uh, my first kind of failure at a, at a race a few weeks ago, which has been massively revealing um, mm. on, on that. Um, and I, I, people don't necessarily think of it along these terms. I suppose it's, it's an adventure. People want to push themselves and explore, but underlying that is perhaps this need to feel, you know, more uncertainty and then learn how you deal with it as a, as an individual. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, um, so yeah, I, th I think that running has a lot of analogies for, and not just ultra running, but, but running has a lot of analogies for, for life in that yeah. um, in that way you know in the you know habit formation or dealing with the fact that you don't want to do it or or aches and pains yeah. they arise and that's sort of yeah. you know runners are notorious for for continuing to run even if there is an actual injury they they yeah. will continue to do that um, yeah. wow. you know what what needs <laughs> being met there you know yeah wow do you feel your life has improved since you started running like this have you seen yeah. improvements in your mood or in your in your life or why or why do you do it also it's interesting for me yeah so yeah definitely it gives you this sense of of i can but so that's why it was and, and i was doing an ultra distance run some races some on my own you know every month for the last two years and then i was struggling a little bit with some you know aches and pains that weren't really going away so i i took i took a month off uh, mm. for the long one carried on running and and so now much better but I did a, I signed up for a 100k race a few weeks back and um and I just sort of sat back and this is classic isn't it? this would be a good example I sat back on the belief that I could just do it I could just literally turn up and do it not really had any, done any long runs for quite a while um but but still been out there but but thought I could just use my past experience to keep going but what I found was that at about 20k 
the stuff that you start thinking usually around 70 80k crept oh, in. No. and that's not good when you know <laughs> when you're literally a few hours in um and, and that was a complete surprise to me um mm. and started to throw up all the dialogue around oh well you're not going to do this are you you know i told you you know and all that sort of stuff um and then uh, then i sort of made the decision to stop at 50k uh, and that gave me some relief yeah i thought okay i can do that my the aches and pains i've been struggling with in my leg came they were coming back and by the the end of what i end, i ended up doing about 60 odd k because i took a wrong turn somewhere um which is still a good day out 60k is still a good run <laughs> yeah. but but to me wasn't I, I if you'd have been in the car with me driving back afterwards you know i I went to the to the finish line. I just grabbed my bag. I, I chatted to the race director, but I didn't engage with any of the celebration. I was thoroughly, thoroughly, I won't swear because, um, but, you know, I was, not, <laughs> I was really unhappy. I felt a huge sense of failure um, and, and all. It was it was horrible. But but now I can look back and learn, you know, I'm, I'm really taking something from that and, and put in some other measures. So you know, working with a coach and, and really thinking about what I'm doing. So, right. so I mean, that that's kind of, I won't go into any more detail because people get yeah. from falling asleep with boredom because unless you're a runner, <laughs> you're really not interested. Very, very um, but, but how would you put a, how would you put a predictive processing light on that experience? Is there anything you could say to it? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly from that lens, really, uh, the one sort of with my medic, my meditation cap on sort of comes forward more than my predictive processing cap, which is, it's just another great example to, well, maybe it's both since it's in line with our discussion, but it's a really great example to learn what it's like to have one of your um, predictions breached, you know, like all of the anger and disappointment that comes up when we do worse than expected, all of that negative affect that we have when we do worse than expected. Um, Actually, I have, um, I have a new paper coming out that's on horror movies. I don't know if you've seen this or not yet. So I gave a, I gave a talk not too long ago. I'm going to be giving another talk um, in a couple of weeks from now at a conference called um, Art and Affect in the Predictive Mind. Mm -hmm. So if it's interesting, definitely come check it out. I'll give you the link. Yeah. Um, and um, there's, something, there's something similar coming up in that research, which is um, what value might there be for creating negative experiences like, uh, you know, pushing yourself and falling short, because uh, I was what I was going to say to you is, well, there might be some benefit in falling short. Mm -hmm. And actually, we're thinking that maybe one of the benefits of horror films is that uh, it is filled with uncertainty and uncomfortability. So you have these basic bio predictions to be well, right? Yeah to not be chased by a knife wielding maniac, to not be in the situation where there's sort of monsters around. I mean, these are really old, <laughs> these are old deep primordial beliefs that drive your system, right? And then isn't it weird that we go to, we pay good money to be inundated with data that tricks our sensory systems into thinking, well, we're just in those sorts of situations. Um, so, you know, um, Paranormal Activity, this movie, really super scary movie, was in the top 10 highest grossing rated R movies of all time. You know, like we, we spent a lot of money. And a better one is, you know, right now in COVID, uh, Soderbergh's Contagion was the number one iTunes download for the last year. And horror movies have jumped from 12% of the market share to almost 50% of the market share. It's, it's the highest it's ever been. 
So we're in a state in the world right now where we're already scared Yeah. for the last year or so, right? Yeah. Isn't it weird? Isn't it weird then that we went hunting for more negative stimuli? Mm. You would think that we would go to comedies and we would yeah. get away from the uncertainty, but actually it's the other way around. Comedies nosedived and horror films went through the yeah. roof, especially, yeah. especially uh, contagious related horror films. Yeah. So, the, so the question is why? Why, yeah. why is it so shiny to go towards more uncertainty when actually we're uncertainty minimizing systems? So why is it that we would want to go towards the uncertainty? Yeah. And, um, it's like poking a bruise, isn't it? Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. You got it. You got it. So why do we mess with ourselves when we're yeah. hurt? Why do we keep testing the thing? Okay. Yeah. So one of our, we have a, in the paper, we have a couple of pitches for why, and actually I'm going to be presenting this research at that conference. If you want oh, to come cool. along, you'll see. Yeah. Um, uh, we have a couple of reasons why we think films and, and horror films as a subset are attractive to us. One, we build films to be attractive like this. So they set up these creating errors and resolving them in ways that are really attractive to us. And uh, two, we're getting comfortable with the, with the actual content of the film. So for instance, um, if we are systems that are always trying to get a good predictive grip on the world and we're in a really uncertain time, like, you know, this is our first major global contagion that we've had to live through, right? Mm. Um, pandemic. Um, then, it, of course, the system might grab hold of any data, news or movies, to try to get some more information about how it might go. So that yeah, seems reasonable. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but the yeah. third most interesting thing is uh, we propose um, alongside Coltan Scrivener, who's doing great work on morbid curiosity. And um, so definitely check out his research as well, that by... Um, by exposing ourselves to uncertainty, to scary information in a relatively safe environment, one of the things that we're learning to predict better is our own emotional reaction to volatility. Yeah. We don't know that we're doing that necessarily, but you know, um, we always run into uncertainty here in the world and it would behoove us to uh, find out how to do that well. And the only way you can learn to predict what you do in the face of volatility is to expose yourself in some way to volatility. So really what we're doing, we suspect when you go to a horror movie as in part, deep down, is that you're learning to better predict your own emotional reactions to scary stimuli. And the more that you can predict your own reactions, the better your brain is at optimizing over those sorts of reactions. Um, and in fact, Colton Scrivener put out a, a really lovely bit of research last year that showed that um, horror fans were psychologically dealing with the lockdown much better than non-horror fans. So, and he proposed that it might be because by exposing themselves to negativity enough times, the system has really got a good sort of predictive grip on what that's like. And so it's better able to manage it. Same things I was saying with the anxiety. If you can come to predict the arc of anxiety, then you're less bothered by the anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, same, sort of, same sort of story. Yeah. I mean, this sounds very much like graded exposure. Right. Right. Exactly. So exactly. You, know, you, you watch the horror film in which the film, there's uncertainty, but you've created some certainty because you're sitting in your lounge or you've gone. That's to right. You've chosen That's right. to play, you've got, you've got your popcorn, you're sitting with, your, right. with someone or, or whatever. Um, and you go through that, and as you said, the the errors are resolved because it, it you know the 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 monster or whatever 
comes to its end or, or you know that's right um so you come away going oh i, de- I dealt with all of that that's Whoa, right wasn't it the roller coaster and, and that's here, right you got in, it. intact intact um and then it. somehow it makes everything else seem perhaps slightly better because that was really bad i mean god look what happened to those people but that's not happened to me because here i am yeah, so and you learn and you learn what it's like to be on that roller coaster. So the yeah. next time that you have a roller coaster in real life, your system's like, yeah, that happens sometimes. Sometimes there's anxiety and it gets it gets dealt with over a period of time. And actually, um, your point there about gradated is so interesting because even though we're at the theater, there's lots of ways that we get just the right amount of uncertainty from the horror film. We cover our eyes and then we yeah. peek. Right, <laughs> yeah. so we go. That's too much error. Yeah. So you look away, yeah. and then you want to just get a little bit more error in, yeah. right? And uh, and you're right. You go with loved ones, so then you you cuddle up to them to bring down the error. Um, yeah. You turn down the lights to up the error, and you turn them back on again to lower the error. So actually, although it can feel like movies are quite passive, um, there's lots of things that we're actively doing to get that gradated scale just right. Yeah. as we're investigating what it's like to have uncertainty in the system yeah yeah so yeah. so in in I'm, i've not been a massive horror uh, fan um i would say or, or i haven't watched too many but actually I, I i do enjoy it i like ones that and i like ones that have a kind of a you know this was based on a true story there's something about that that, that you know <laughs> there's been poetic license and whatnot but you you wanted this did people really did that really happen um so so we've watched a few my son kind of likes them and he picked a few <clears throat> and there was one i won't mention it because i don't want to be done for libel but there was a there was a film <laughs> where um uh you know lo- lots of things happen sc- scary things and you're on the roller coaster and the end did not there was no resolution so <laughs> so what's the story there so so basically the, the person doing it and you never see them you never see them doing it. You just see the kind of the what sort of happens through other eyes and, and the end result. And then at the end, you see you're kind of in the car with this person who's done all these things going on to the next. And, and that's how it ends. So you're just left with massive uncertainty. I mean, what's that? Yeah, yeah that just seems like one of those one of those things that film creators can do to mess with predictive systems like us, right? Yeah. They could literally give us cliffhangers, which we we don't enjoy because we're looking for resolution of that error. Yeah. Um, fortunately for us, you know, the movie ended. So it does have a sort of natural ending. Even if the story doesn't have an ending, you're no longer sort of being bombarded by yeah. bombarded yeah. by the negative stimuli. No, that's, yeah. true. that's true. I don't know if you're aware, um, there's a, uh, a, a, a sort of a police drama that's been on it's been going for a number of series and there was one there was one recently um uh, the latest one and, and everyone's been trying to find out who the corrupt people are so it's all about corruption in the in the police um and and kind of each time you're kind of hoping to find out who these various characters are and everyone's working them out and there's been uh, podcasts and blogs and it was all across the media and all this stuff and, and they had the final episode. This is only a few weeks ago. And, and they had the final episode. So, you know, again, it's this real roller coaster. It's not horror, but it's ups, downs. Is it him? Is it her? Did they do it? And all that stuff. Um, and the, the kind of the backlash, because through many people's, in many people's eyes, it was a really disappointing ending. 
Yeah. <laughs> I felt that. It was like the, the classic anti-climax of, of yeah. hours and hours of watching and thinking. Yeah. And thinking oh, oh, really? Yeah. Is, that, is that it? Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, funny. Very good. You know, there's actually, there's actually a, an industry growing up now where neuroscientists are acting as consultants for movie makers, um, researching exactly how those good slopes of error reduction, error creation, and as error resolution and suspense so there's a real science of suspense growing mm -hmm. where you can put people in the lab and do eye tracking and uh, heart rate um, monitoring and see what is the optimal rise and fall of expectation to be maximally sort of alluring for us. And then you have, you have consultants right from science, you know, helping filmmakers get sort of optimal, optimal slopes. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Yeah, that is. That's very interesting. And, and I've heard you, you and others sort of talk about these, these slopes. And it kind of makes me think that maybe we should, uh, or maybe you could just define a few of the common terms. We've done it a bit topsy-turvy. Yeah. I don't think that matters because I think this is very consumable for people. Um, yeah. But there, there are terms. So we've got things like predictive processing, active right. inference. They're probably right. two, two right. of the biggie work, biggies, aren't they, that people talk about. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about what basically what yes sorry i should have done that right off the top um, no, 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 right. it's fine. So, i sort of did it, it on purpose back to front yeah okay great so um yeah so uh sometimes called predictive processing or active inference they're really um often inter interchangeable um and it just refers to a new approach to thinking about um what the brain and nervous system is doing what the cognitive system is doing so traditionally we thought that um a lot of processing uh, in the brain and nervous system was a bottom-up affair. So the brain largely waited around for signals to come and then it processed those signals from sort of simple to complex. Um, and recently uh, that idea has been sort of flipped on its head. So now we're starting to appreciate much more the top-down affair that's going on in the brain and the nervous system. So instead of the brain waiting around and being relatively passive, the new image is the brain as radically proactive. So the brain here is being characterized as a sort of prediction engine, which is all the time trying to, well, it takes what it knows about the world, the statistical regularities that exist in the world, and then it builds from the top down for itself, uh, the sensory stimuli that it's meeting in the world. And then it just uses the sensory data to update its predictions. And you know, if, if there's no difference, then that's fine. Then you've got a good grip of what the scene is. And if there is a difference, then we, we update that difference. So then the brain is, it has sort of two roles. One is it's creating predictions about what happens next. And then it's driving um, model updating and behaviors in ways that help you minimize the discrepancy between what you expect to happen next and what really does happen next. And it turns out that that kind of a system is exceptionally good at figuring out a lot of things about its environment very, very quickly. Um, and it's a super good way for a system to become quickly adapted to a really volatile environment, which is why we build our AI like this. You know, we're building AIs in exactly the same way today where you make them anticipatory rather than passive receivers. So that's predictive processing sort of in a nutshell. Mm. Um, and recently we've been interested in the role that emotion plays, affectivity plays, in this system, which is why I'm interested in depression and anxiety and well-being and horror movies. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's the that's the <laughs> that's the red thread that uh, goes between them all, right? Is that they're all affective, they're all affective things. Yeah. Um, and um, I don't know how much I'll go into this, but I'll just tell you a little. So 
the, the, the sort of the newest, the newest bit, the newest addition to this framework is starting to think about positive and negative valence. So good feelings and bad feelings as a reflection of how fast or how slow you're reducing prediction error relative to expectation. So when we do better than expected at getting a good predictive grip on the scene, it feels good. We get rewarded. We return there again and again, because it's a good place to go if we want to get good predictions up and running. Yeah. Um, and if we do worse than expected, like you're, you know, you plan to go and run a certain distance, you don't quite make it. That's worse than expected at reducing the, the prediction error from your expectation to finish the race yeah. and where you are now starting off on the race. You were expecting to go at a certain rate when you didn't go at that expected rate. All of that negative feeling you felt, that's the system sort of flashing back at you that you are, for whatever reason, doing worse than you had expected. And that's meant to signal to your system that something has gone wrong. And that gives you information about how good you're doing. And then you're able to update how you're approaching the situation based on that second order information. Yeah. So that's the slopes I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, we can use our our feel, you know, how how I am, or, or even ask ourselves the question, how am I? as as a guide to this that's right that's right so feelings here and this is a this isn't a new idea but it's it's i find it very interesting that it's re-emerging is the idea that um feelings are second order forms of information for us so they tell us about how well or poorly we're doing at the thing that we do and for mm. in this theory the thing that we're primarily doing is making predictions and confirming predictions so you're right you can step back and say, how am I feeling about this? And it will give you some, it's meant to give you some indication of if you're getting a good predictive grip or if you're losing your predictive grip. And that's meant to be able to motivate the system or augment the system so that it can get to a better grip. So you can imagine uh, when you're a kid, you know, you uh, want something to happen, then it doesn't happen and then you feel a bit bad. And then that bad feeling, if it's working right, could make you task switch. So now you stop caring about trying to get the cookie and you run to dad for a cuddle, yeah. you know, like that's you task switch. And that's one of the ways that you can then deal with the uncertainty that you're experiencing. If you can't do it like that, then the negative affect should bump you out of that predictive set and maybe set you um, predicting in a new way. Yeah. I mean, that's, that sounds like the, the kind of the ideal, the, the, the flexible person, right. resilient person, as, as opposed to, the, the the frozen one or the stuck one which you've got it focusing on i haven't got the cookie yeah but you could have the hug but i haven't got the cookie but you uh, have and on and on you've got it you've got it dead on so we wrote a paper called losing ourselves which is on uh depersonalization and meditation using this slope story and that's exactly the example that we give that what happens if you can't task switch out so mm. you have rising uncertainty so it's telling you that your cookie getting endeavor isn't going the way you expect. So that means it's more uncertain. You're less certain about it, about achieving your goal now because it's too high or somebody said no. And that negativity, what that does is it, it reduces your certainty over that action, which frees you up to maybe get caught by other action predictions. Like, you know, maybe I'm interested in this. So same sort of thing, like with you running um, the negative valence that came up one of the things I heard you say was it got you to reach out to a trainer and mm -hmm. to adjust your schedule. And that's what it should do. It should yeah. get you to task switch and then start updating again. But what happens if you can't task switch? What about with chronic pain? 
what if there's chronic pain and then you try to task switch and the pain comes with you? Yeah. And then you try to task switch and the pain comes with you and you yeah. try to task switch and the pain comes with you. Um, we propose that what ends up happening is that higher level of the system, which is expecting to be able to task switch to make things better, it then becomes uncertain. So not only are you uncertain at the bottom level, but now your own ability to get somewhere better becomes uncertain. So now there's errors at that part of the system. Yeah. So then a higher level tries to take over and try to get you somewhere else. But again, that error is being persistent. So it's meaningful and it's ongoing. So this becomes uncertain as well. And you have this cascading failure up the system, which yeah. um, ends in, well, for instance, in depersonalization with some of those experiences where, you know, some research, and we, we like this, um, we like this characterization that depersonalization might be like a, an, air, an emotional airbag, where when you have a trauma that you're not able to manage, the brain turns off, turns off that, that suffering data in some way so that you don't have to experience it as sharply. The side effect though, is that you lose something that's really important to make you ordinarily feel like yourself. So when it goes quiet, you feel super weird. You know, it's a very alien way to be. So we suspect that it's this valenced system. That's the one that's, that's telling you, no, it's not going well. And it goes up a system. It goes, no, it's still not going well. It goes up a system. No, it's still not going well. So the system goes, okay, well, the only way we can manage the error now is to turn off the system that's telling us it's not going well. So yeah. it silences this affective system. But of course, that affective system is the one that is usually pulling you and pushing you in the world, telling you how your various predictive um, engagements are going. And that's what gives you a feeling of being you, your constant sense of, of doing better or worse than expected and all the things you care about. That really gives you a sense of meaning. It pulls you into the world. It pushes you away from other things. So imagine if that one goes quiet, what would life be like? Yeah. Well, life would be, you would be in a place where things no longer push or pull you in the same way. You no longer have the feeling from the inside that things matter to you like they used to matter to you. And it turns out a lot about what we, what we feel about being a self, a lot of our feelings of being a self are wrapped up in that constant push and pull in our various endeavors. So it goes silent to protect you, but we lose our sense of self along the way. So we contrast that in the paper uh, with what happens in selfless experiences in meditation. Yeah. And uh, look at how they're actually, we think they're quite different. But anyway, that's what the paper ends up doing. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And, and actually, um, and, and we, I think we both know um, Anna and... Um, yes, exactly. ...in, um, in, in depersonalization, derealization, um, partly from my own experiences of that as well. Mm. Um, it doesn't happen so often now, but, but often the time I do feel it is if I'm a bit tired and funnily enough go for a run so I'm out running and suddenly suddenly there's no there's this weird it's so difficult to describe it's that sort of soft focus almost you know I'm totally aware I know it's me I know I'm out what I'm doing totally conscious um but but there's almost no feel to the body it's just it's just gone and I know it's going to pass and in fact, it, it happened a few weeks ago and, and I just started getting angry. I was like, oh, come on. You know, I want to feel I want to feel this. I want to feel my yeah. body running. That was and I was getting really irritated that I couldn't yeah. um, give it 20 minutes or whatever. And, and then suddenly 
it's a bit like having that you know you coming out of the cold sea and putting a warm towel around you that kind of yeah. oh yeah the body's yeah. black yeah. um and i think the uh, evidence shows that a lot of a lot of people have this in fact you know like most people have intermittent little experiences where parts of their self fall away mm. um at least in meditative terms it's quite useful really little intermittent ones because it reminds us what we're not yeah. you know you can get you can get along just fine without a hard a hard boundary around your body just temporarily of course it comes back online but you know you might walk away from that thinking hmm, you know then it looks like i can i can function more or less fine without that little sense popping yeah. through yeah no yeah. no absolutely absolutely again it's this kind of moving into that that sort of discomfort to mm. to understand how you can deal with it and then kind of come back to whatever your norm is and realize mm. that you can i i can and i think that particularly with people struggling with more persistent things whether it be yes. you know addiction anxiety depression pain or, or, yes. or all of those in some yes. cases um to to be able to to do that but it's it, that's the challenge of, of therapy and the challenge of for that person and 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 they've got to do it yeah that's the thing um and that's what come back to you know your point around teaching you know we're trying to teach people to do things and i wrote something earlier today about with just on on instagram with persistent pain you know someone can't treat you to get better and this whole idea of we treat people i think is it's we've got to question that we've got to look at that carefully because it gives people the wrong ideas when they go in to receive something from us um that, that they're just going to be passive in this and that just can't you know this is this is about learning and, and developing and evolving and 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 whilst i like the compassion focused stuff around it's not your fault you know your genes your mind your body the way you've been brought up your conditioning not your fault people feel it is their fault obviously and blame themselves the self-critic is often that story but then moving on to be able to take responsibility and we as clinicians therapists are there to to help and guide and encourage empower educate all of those things that that is what i see as the sustainable framework if you like that helps the person move on and shape something better maybe just as one last point there you know what you would suspect from this framework for overcoming something like that is to regain a sense of autonomy because that's what goes that's what is the critical cascading failure right you suddenly feel like you're uncertain you can't you, you don't have any way out so you're right, doing something for somebody in that situation is uh, not as powerful as finding ways to give them back a sense of autonomy, finding, this is why I, I love this sort of um, uh, accept and commit therapy, I think is really powerful here where you say, okay, this is the state of affairs, but continue to act. Find that there are other ways that you can act or like you've said at the beginning of the conversation, change your relationship with the pain or change your relationship with the strange phenomenology and, and continue to have self-efficacy because then what you're training the system to see is actually you haven't lost all of your autonomy. It's just in this one pie slice. Um, mm. And if you could broaden your perspective and see that actually you have all sorts of autonomy left in these various other aspects of your ordinary coping, um, I think that would go a long way, at least theoretically, it would go a long way in um, in creating some volatility about this belief, this belief yeah. that 
you're not able to move in a way that'll bring about good ends. Yeah. Yeah. Cause a lot of people will describe in their own ways, you know, limitations. I can't do this. I don't, you know, lack of choice. Um, they don't, they don't even see the opportunities within their environment. There are, there are affordances yeah. we can use right. that, that term. Right. Um, and we can, you know, we try and help them see that, that what they can do and then build on that rather than focusing on what they can't do. Yeah, fantastic. So that, that seems to fit pretty well. On, on a sort of a more nuts and bolts, a more nuts and bolts question then, you know, my, my experience, my perception, is, is that the prediction that I'm experiencing? I don't know if I can say that, you'll, you'll tell me. Or, or am I experiencing the prediction error? Or neither. Yeah, yeah. It's actually a bit of a technical question, really. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I guess kind of both. In a way, you're in a way you're perceiving both. I mean, you're right. You're right. It's the error that's driving, um, is driving the updating of the prediction. But in a way, you're experiencing the prediction. Yeah. So, because you know, when um, I think that people are starting to use, I mean, certainly Mick Thacker has has really been bringing pain and predictive processing together and his work's been fantastic um and uh, with andy clark and, and this is all kind of coming together you know really quite magnificently but but a lot of work to be done yet and again you know that refers to you know clearly we're both open to to these things and yeah and of course, in, in healthcare, people often, particularly patients, and again, you know, this ties right back into everything you've been saying, they want certainty. How long is this going to take? When will <laughs> I feel better? Yeah, that's um, how we're built. We're, built, we're yeah. built to try to get a good predictive grip. So that's, yeah. that's juicy for us, right? We want to we be able to expect how it goes. That's true. But then we as clinicians have to be able to say, well, we can't tell you that exactly. Yeah, well, that has something to do with this slope, you know, because you want, if you say it's going to, you know, like one of the reasons why a PhD can be so difficult, I think, is because you say, well, in four years from now, something's going to happen. And then uh, you're behind the eight ball the entire time, right? It's always worse than expected for four years. So no wonder you have, you know, no wonder you have nervous breakdowns from it. So uh, I think this is just, you know, good cultural wisdom, which is best thing to do there is to break it down break it down to as small a sets as possible so that you can get rewarded by all your little successes along the way. So I completely hear that. You would imagine the best thing to do is you want to give extremely small, you want to give small goals that are easily achievable soon yeah. so that the system can watch itself doing well at managing error in its environment. I mean, I suspect the same sort of thing would be beneficial for any of these pathologies that are about expecting that you're not going to be able to do well, which is just start setting small goals so that you can teach the system that look, actually you can succeed at minimizing prediction error. You just got to start doing it in these little micro ways. Stop. Don't worry about, don't worry about a year from now. Mm. Worry about what I want you to do today is this and this. And if you can really care about that, then you'll get the positive affect of, wow, I did that. Like I succeeded. I succeeded at that. I and mean, we definitely use that in meditation a lot, you know? You switch the story. You don't want a mind that's still and focused. Don't worry about that. That comes as a side effect. Mm -hmm. What you want is you want the attention to go away from the object lots and you want to catch it as soon as you can and bring it back. Yeah. And you want to feel good about the catching. So instead of feeling bad, 
that you're not able to get a clear mind, which is one of your expectations. You start making the expectation something that's already happening in the mind anyway. Yeah. And when you catch it, then you feel good. So of course you have the dopamine system and all the reward circuitry helping you, helping you along the way. Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, you refer to, to the dopamine system, you know, a fair amount for, for good reason. Well, I mean, what role does it have to play here? Yeah. Well, if we think that, um, so dopamine in the, in this framework plays a role in setting precision. Precision is just, um, if you think about it as turning the volume up or down on prediction errors. So it tells you which prediction errors are meaningful or interesting, which prediction errors should drive the system and which shouldn't. So yeah. you can imagine if you're walking through, um, you know, a mall, there's all sorts of uncertainty around you, but not much of it is newsworthy. Not much of it is really going to impact how you behave or the way you perceive. Most of it's just, you know, not very interesting noise. So precision is about what sort of matters to the system. Um, so um, dopamine, along with lots of other neuromodulatory chemicals, um, are suspected to play a role in tuning precision. And of, of course, as soon as you start thinking about balance and good feelings and bad feelings or pain and pleasure, then you're already in the realm of starting to look for evidence in how the reward circuitry functions. It's one of the nice things I like about this add-on. This is a little bit technical, but um, you know, um, it allows us in this one framework to also sort of fold in this long tradition from reward prediction error research that says that you know the dopamine system is um, it fires relative to anticipation and doing better than you anticipate. You know, we've known that for a long time, that the reward system doesn't fire when things go the way you want them to. It goes, it fires when you do better than you expected. As soon as you come to expect it, it no longer fires the same circuitry. So we've known for a long time that reward circuitry is about doing better, better than or worse than. Yeah, so you're yeah. tracking how well you tend to do and breaches in that is really what gets triggered. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not, that's not all that new, really. The new, the only new addition is, is that you start from this framework from a sort of first principles approach. And actually you end up being able to fold in this research and, and see that actually the, the brain is maybe doing that kind of stuff all the way around. And there's just one example of it. Yeah, yeah. So does that sort of explain that that's day to day experience that we have? For, for me, it's um, a book arrives from Amazon or somewhere else. Um, and and I, I get very excited by that. Yeah, very yeah, excited. right. Um, yeah, that's, well, well, that's part of it. That's part of it. Another thing, though, and actually, I wanted to say this a little bit earlier. So it's nice that it comes up again. Now, one of the reasons why we're attracted maybe to again, horror films or to the news, same sort of thing. Same reason why we might be excited when we get a package. Same reason why we get addicted to social media. Social media engineers this in a big way is that um, uh, we find salient that those signals in the world that tell us with a high degree of certainty that there's some meaningful uncertainty that you can now get to and start resolving because it feels good when we resolve uncertainty. You know, okay. we, we are slope chasers, as Andy Clark says. We're always looking for good chances to reduce error better or more efficiently or well. So when you get a package, I mean to say you have extremely high certainty that there's something in the package that you don't know about yet. It's going to be, so a book is a good example because you know there's going to be all this 
uncertainty to consume in yeah. those characters' lives, but you don't know what it is yet. And that's um, recent accounts have been proposed for, that's actually what salience is. So things stand out in the world mm. insofar as they're storefronts for meaningful uncertainty. You don't know what's in the store, but the storefront is telling you good uncertainty yeah. here, yeah. right? <laughs> and you can imagine that that's why the news is so alluring. The news tells you this story is meaningful for you. First of all, it's meaningful error because, well, you know, a, a good way to automatically make sure that error is meaningful for us, make sure it's meaningful for a system that's trying to keep its homeostasis within a certain set of limits like we are, because yeah. then violence, danger, fire, earthquake, I mean, all, all of these things are going to be always meaningful for us because one of the things that we're trying to predict well is our own bodily, our own life in yeah. a way, you know? So anything that breaches our life is gonna show up as newsworthy. So the news says, well, look, we've got a story, a headline. The headline tells you meaningful uncertainty below. So of course we get, a, we get, drawn, we get drawn into it. Mm -hmm. um, so like your book with Amazon and also like the social engineering that we're seeing in social media as well. It's addictive because they become experts at going meaningful uncertainty here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, this sort of moves on to thinking about movement and and to use Carl Friston's words, you know, there's, there's not a lot you can achieve without without moving. So it sounds like movement is one of the main ways that we we do this. We, we sort of resolve uncertainty by by moving, right. literally moving our body to gather to gather some sense data with that. That's that, right. So, you know, the, the, the two big ways are. You can either, I mean, if you have a model of how the world works and then you show up in the world and it's not exactly the way you thought it was going to be, you can do a couple of things. One, you can update your model to better fit the world, um, which requires neuroplasticity to sort of be turned on to update how you expect things to be. Or uh, you can just behave in ways that make the world better fit with your expectations. And um, those are always working. They're always working in tandem as we're making our way through the world trying to manage uncertainty right yeah so we can kind of learn something new about it or challenge our own beliefs perhaps as you said using something like meditation or right. go and talk to someone yeah. or we can start going out and doing things in a in a different way yeah i almost suspect uh i don't know if this is exactly the case i, I have the suspicion i've seen it somewhere but it just makes intuitive sense to me i think updating the model is uh, is is metabolism-wise more expensive. You know, it's easier for us just to behave in some way to try to make the world align with our belief structure, especially if the belief is you know connected with all sorts of other beliefs where you'd have to lift the set yeah. in order to change the one thing. So no wonder we fight to try to make the world align with our beliefs rather than updating our beliefs. But actually, both work. So you could imagine. You could imagine. I think probably. Um, use of psychedelics and, and definitely meditation are ways of training the system to more readily to more readily update its model rather than try to change the world. And, you know, there's um, uh, a nice paper out actually where they suspect that that's why you sit still in meditation, you know, because what you're doing is you're stopping yourself from being able to go the behavior route. Yeah. You got your eyes closed, hands clasped, legs crossed. You're not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so now you've, you've cut off. You've cut off that avenue 
So then you're forcing neuroplasticity, you're forcing model update rather yeah. than behavioral update. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, cool, really right? And then think about when people are put into solitary isolation or or a kid is sent out of the class, you know, that kind of thing and and what that does on, on this level. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what would you, I mean, you, you may or may not have anything to say about this, but mm. you know, movement disorders. So so I work with a lot of people who suffer with dystonia um, and sometimes- What's, what's dystonia? What's so dystonia is a, a movement disorder, involuntary movement. Uh, mm. it, be, it can affect one part of the body. So it might be writer's cramp, for example, or musician's cramp is another example. It might affect the neck so that the head is kind of turned because uh, the, the muscles are pulling in a, in a particular way. There might be spasms or, or, or movements as well. And it's very difficult to, to maneuver the head or whichever part's affected. It can affect the eyes so they're, they're blinking or they stay open. It can affect yeah. the jaw so eating and speaking is difficult or other parts yeah. of the face. I mean, it can be very, very troubling for, for, for yeah. the person experiencing it. But ultimately, yeah. it is it is a... A movement, it's called a movement disorder, but of course you can't have movement without the sense data. So it's a sensory yeah. motor issue, yeah. but then you can't have that without being a person with emotions because stress and anxiety, attention is the big feeder. So the more you focus on it, the worse it gets. And of course, expectations play a role as well. I just wondered if, if there was anything that you, any thoughts that came to mind off that? No, actually, I'm not sure. It's... Um... There's pretty interesting cases of um, people who appear as though they have motor deficits and they're attention driven, but in fact, there's no reason they have those motor deficits. I don't know if you know this. Is it motor sim motor syndrome? So well, you got, are you talking about functional neurological functional motor syndromes? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, functional yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the only that's the only one that comes to mind. Work that Rob McIntosh has done is pretty fascinating. That people feel like they can't move their leg. But yeah. if you get them to do a movement where they take their attention off that leg, the leg moves fine. Like you say, okay, we'll move your chair. So they move their leg a little bit to move the chair. And then they go back and say, no, no, no the leg's paralyzed. Yeah. It doesn't work yeah. at all. And it's attention driven in some way. So there is some research coming out, linking that with, which is Rob McIntosh's work at the university of Edinburgh. Okay. Um, but no, I don't know much. I don't know much about, um, about motor symptoms. Yeah, I think if, if, if you kind of take it on the level that, that you know, move, when, when you move, you're, you know, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're fulfilling a prediction that's already been been made. Right. Yeah. Um, so you're kind of stepping into the, the shoes of that movement that's already been predicted. Would that would that be right? Yeah. To say that? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So the, the question then is, is, well, why why are these? these involuntary, um, unwanted movements, like the often severe turning of the head or the neck, you know, why, why is that being predicted in the first place? What, what is the purpose there? Something's clearly gone wrong, you could say. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, you it's, know, it's um, a fascinating area. Only, and, and only thing that comes to mind for me is, um, you know, there's a, there is a bio story here too, you know, like if you, if you have surgery and you shorten a muscle or then it doesn't matter about the prediction. I mean, in a way, the body is like a prediction, phenotypical predictions over, over evolutionary scales. But I mean to say that, um, you can have, you can have a bio issue too, you know, like if you 
overwork one muscle and underwork another muscle, then you're going to have the body is going to reshape itself. And I don't know if that's exactly the same thing as having a prediction that's being fulfilled, or if you have changed the prior, you know, in a way, like, I mean, you've changed the shape of the body and now you're making predictions relative to that shape. So, you know, I make predictions relative to the, to the Mm. phenotypical shape that I have. So I make predictions relative to my hand moving like this. If you cut off one of my fingers, I'll start making predictions only with the fingers that I have. Um, So that's a bio story, right? That's just a, you've lost a bit of the, of the embodied model. And now you're making predictions out of that. So you could imagine the same sort of thing might happen for just purely structural, um, for purely structural reasons as well. Same thing happens in depression. Like um, the sickness, the sickness behaviors that come out of depression, you know, you might cast them as predictions on one level. But another thing to say is that you only have a finite amount of resources in the system. So you can only have persistent error for so long before the system just can't function anymore. So, you know, what, what you can cast at one level as predictions at another level, just over time, it's just a bio story in a way you've just burnt, you've just used up all of your resources. And the result is this is as best as you can predict given the resources you have available to you now, which are diminished. So does that mean there's kind of no way in that moment until they build those resources again, somehow there's no way in that moment that they can update. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. What do you think? I mean, you know, the, you know, the framework very well as well. I'd love to hear what your intuition is. Cause I, I have no idea. I, yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm sort of out there sort of feeling it, you know, and, and getting a feel for... Maybe, maybe, maybe we can get together again and talk in the future and I'll, we'll take some time and, and look into it because it's a super fascinating, mm-hmm. it's a fascinating topic, but I'm just, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it is because I think, again, you know, dystonia is, is not so well known, but I think it, it throws up all sorts of examples of... Of, of how we face the world, how we act in and upon the world, how we create the sense of the world. Because if you imagine, you know, someone walking along the street um, and their head is turning so they can't see straight ahead or they come to cross the road and they can't look left and right, they can't gather all that information. The world becomes more and more threatening and stressful and kicks up all that kind of physiology. Um, so literally, if they Well, head- I mean, that, that right there at least makes sense, right? Yeah. I mean, you're using one of the ways that you ordinarily cope with uncertainty in the world so of course that's going to be stressful because relative to your expectations about how well you can cope with error you're doing worse than expected you know you've spent years being in a healthy state and now you're doing worse than your healthy state Uh, so of course it's going to be error filled it's going to be it's going to be anxiety ridden and you're not going to be able to manage uncertainty at the same at the same rate as you were before that's for sure yeah so it's it and then you know this this feeling of what it's like to be with people you know they start to withdraw socialize less they don't want people to see them it's very it's difficult to to communicate in in some way so so it just throws up i guess in your using your language throws up so many errors they're just de- dealing with you know all the time all the time all the time and and often well when they first come along not very successfully i suppose what we're trying when we work together we try and help them to be more successful in minimizing their errors as, as they're navigating their life and their world. And again, the vicious thing that happens that looks like it happens from the perspective of this framework is if you live with error long enough, what can happen is the system can start expecting that error. And then it does the sort of vicious thing where it starts looking for that error. So yeah. then you start finding examples of your inability to manage error. That's yeah. one of the ways the system learns to cope. 
Um, so no wonder we have sort of social withdrawal because now signals that could be could be um, interpreted as as uncertainty are going to stand out a little bit more than they did before. And social situations are really complex. You know, they're filled with errors already, let yeah. alone if you're on the lookout for uncertainty. Yeah, and I guess then you know that that would explain you know the the kind of the ongoing predictions of that particular movement. The, albeit right. unwanted, it's not what I, I want to be doing, but, but that's the best that can be predicted right now. And it's not matching, you know, the, the I don't know, the, the prior predictions of, of being able to look straight and turn and look left and right. So probably throwing up massive errors, which right. is why it's really felt and why there's perhaps so much suffering and, and feeling bad. Right. So again, the, 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 one of the things the theory would propose might help is to start reteaching the system that it can do better than expected at tasks. So whatever tasks are available so that it stops thinking there's only uncertainty that you start teaching the system that it can reduce uncertainty, like you just said. And the other thing that potentially could help is to take the precision off of that issue. Meaning one of the ways you can stop the error is by is by reducing how meaningful the error is to the person. So again, I can't help but think sort of some of the Buddhist meditation training suits there as well, which is coming to reflect that the body is going to be sick. It's going to be diseased. It's going to be injured. It's going to grow old. It's going to die. And really reflecting on those things. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it's beneficial for us to be doing that through our whole life, even before we're sick and injured and older. Because if we can include in our model that that's just one of the things that happens here when you're a bio body in a, in a world filled with gravity uh, where you get old. And then if that's part of your model, then you would, in the same way as I was saying, if you can, if you can experience horror a couple of times or you, can, or you can be mindful through anxiety, you're going to come to model that. And so you'll be better able to operationalize over that. Same sort of thing here. If you can include in your model that these are actually quite ordinary things to happen to humans over their lifetime, that yes, it's unfortunate. Yes, it hurts. And yes, there's things. To, and of course, there's things to do to work through it. But it's, it's not really all that special. It is one of the things that can happen when we're here. Yeah. That's quality of equanimity, right? Um, then you might be able to turn the volume down on it a little, which means it doesn't feature so strongly anymore, which means it's not driving the system in the same sorts of ways anymore. Um, So that's a, you know, that's a big, that's a big movement for not only bringing more compassion into healthcare, but more equanimity. So Mm -hmm. not only, not only uh, helping people be more self-compassionate, but also having people become a bit wiser about what's a natural state here for humans. Yeah, I guess it's getting in touch with the realities of life. This is what right. happens, whether we like right. it or not. And you might have been trained to believe that you don't like it, but actually that's that's the way it is as best we know it. So the more we, we, acceptant you are of that, the less surprise. We see this a lot in, um, you know, there's research about nurses having uh, empathy burnout. You know, you get into nursing because you have a real strong, compassionate desire to help people. And then you show up and you realize, you can't help everybody. Lots of people are going to die under your watch. It doesn't matter how much effort you put in, how much time, how much metabolism you burn on. You cannot reduce that error. You want people to be maximally healthy. You have a deep level belief that all humans can be healthy, maximally healthy. 
And so anything that's short of maximally healthy is persistent error. And you know what? One of the ways that that system that's under constant duress deals with it, this is very spooky. I mean, makes a lot of sense from this model is that actually you can turn off your empathy systems. Mm. So then you have care workers becoming, starting to exemplify psychopathic tendencies because the only way they were able to manage the error was to stop having the empathic belief running so strongly so that they're not being harmed every day by the thing that's happening less than expected. And there's lots of training programs, I think, to get healthcare workers today to become more compassionate and more empathic. I don't see very many, and I actually spoke on this at the NHS in the UK a couple of years ago, I don't see very many people teaching equanimity, teaching people to get a better balanced view of what's realistic for humans and then making that a real part of the education. Yeah. You know, that, that old age sickness, death, injury, they're extremely natural for humans. Um, and uh, that doesn't reduce your motivation, but what it can do is it can make when those things go in that direction, the system already has the belief set. So it doesn't create the same amount of error as it would previous yeah. to that sort of training. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's a really massive area and something I've thought about a lot. That's another conversation we need to have. We need to have many yeah. conversations. <laughs> and, and you know, what? I'm, I'm, I'm aware of time. And um, mm. I, I just want to say now that one of the reasons why I, and, and again, this is my own bias and I'm building my own beliefs about this is why, why I, I really feel so energized about this model is that you know, we've just spoken about some stuff there that, that's not really been tested or hasn't particularly been tested, but yet we can come through that lens and have a very sensible, practical, real-life discussion about that, which right. then creates the opportunity to test it if you want that's to. That's right. That's right. And on we go. And I think that is one of the beauties of, of this. I um, completely agree. The, 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 most, the, reason, the only reason I'm really working in this framework is because it uh, lends itself well to scientific exploration. It is a good framework. It's a framework that comes with a lot of really interesting computational tools. Lots of people are interested in modeling using the maths that underlie these expressions. And then we're able to build models and build experiments that make good hypotheses where we can test to see if it's the case. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, great. Well, this is, it's been awesome. Uh, yeah. I knew it would, and it's exceeded expectations. So, yeah. Yeah. well, that's why we feel so good, right? <laughs> yeah, we feel good because we're doing better than expected. Yeah, very good. That's it, and that's what we want for others. So, um, thank you so much for giving so much. giving this time. It's been brilliant, and um, hopefully, there'll be part two, three, four, five, six, whatever. Um, love that. Would love where, to come back. Brilliant, brilliant. Where where can people find you so they can uh, see what you're up to? Yeah, I've got a new website. Website is markdmiller.live. Um, I can give you the link for wherever you post this. And, um, and we regularly post our new research on Twitter. And there it's um, at Predictive Life is my Twitter handle. Fantastic. So I'll put all that and, um, and yeah, you know, we'll, I'll, get, I'll grab all the links and those articles and things from you. Exactly. I'll put together a little package for you. Um, yeah. Which will be uh, fantastic. So but for now, from um, near Brighton, where I know you know, to Japan, cheerio. Great to see you. Cheerio. See Stay you next care. time. Okay. Bye-bye.